Hey there, listeners. This is Justin with a quick note before today's episode. Spotify recently allowed users to start leaving reviews for podcasts, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would consider listening to the show on Spotify, leaving us a positive review. I don't even think you have to write anything in. You just get a star rating and that's it. But uh, if you're willing to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks and enjoy today's show. Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Nasiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 434, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership with Diana Chapman. So the coach said, well, Diana, would you be willing to be the breadwinner? And uh, I can remember my throat just clamping up like, what? Because I don't think I'd ever made more than a few thousand dollars ever in a given month. And um, my husband said, wow, that would be amazing if you could take over for a while so I could really figure out what is it that I most want to do with my life. And so he gave me a number and said, if you can make this much money a month, three months in a row, I'll quit my job. Well, many of you may have listened to an episode I did on Thursday a few weeks back where I gave a book review for a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, A New Paradigm for Sustainable Success. I love this book so much that I send a copy of it to every new client that I sign up for my company, Executive Presence. I love it. I have <laughs> reread it and and just think there is so much value in this book. So Diana, while she is not a veteran herself, has helped a lot of veterans and is one of the authors of this book and was so honored to have her on the show. To help you get your bearings, we cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk about your zone of genius and how to find a career that fits into that. We talk about limiting beliefs about ourselves and how those can cause us to rule out careers and career paths that we really shouldn't and how to identify and overcome those limiting beliefs. We talk about being with grief, being with anger, just feeling all of our feelings and how that can actually help in your career. We talk about integrity, and I particularly enjoy Diana's definition of integrity. It's it's slightly different than what I learned about at the Naval Academy and in the military, and I think it's very, very powerful. And then lastly, we talk about shifting to a life of play, how to gamify things rather than take everything really heavy and seriously, and how much faster we learn when we find a way to do it through play. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, there's show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as 433 episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Diana. Well, joining me today, just outside Santa Cruz in Scotts Valley, California, my guest is Diana Chapman. Diana, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be with you. So I'm going to take a couple minutes here. I'm going to give Diana's bio for context, but I also want to add my own spin on her bio. So Diana is an advisor to exceptional leaders who has worked with over 1,000 organizational leaders and many of their teams, and as a founding partner at Conscious Leadership Group. She has created and implemented professional onboarding and ongoing programs based on the comprehensive body of work she developed with CLG co-founder Jim Detmer with clients such as Asana and Esalon. In addition to facilitating CLG forums in the Bay Area for founders, venture capitalists, and CEOs, 
Diana facilitates YPO forums and chapters worldwide. She also trains coaches in conscious leadership in the CLG training program she and Jim created. Diana co-authored the best-selling book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, A New Paradigm for Sustainable Success in 2015. She has been a speaker at TEDx, Mindful Leadership Summit, Wisdom 2.0, Stanford Graduate School of Business, Haas School of Business, YPO, and Kaufman Fellows. So that's the official bio. My own gushing bio for Diana is I've got on my desk right here, I've got a stack of four of her books. I've got one ready to be shipped out because every time I bring on a new client, my company executive presence, I send the client her book. And the next employee I hire, I'm giving them a book because it's essentially what I want to be our company handbook. And I'll say, and you know, let's call it 10 years of personal development work. When I read Diana's book, it just felt like the most brilliant encapsulation of everything I've learned in 10 years, but put in a business wrapper that is so accessible to so many people. And I just feel like, you know, it's one of those books where there was no fat to trim. It was the exact number of pages it should be. And in some ways I was wanting even more, which is rare for me in a book, but I feel like it is, yeah, just an absolute handbook for not just business, but for life. And I've got on my little corkboard off screen here. I've got, I typed it up by hand, all 15 principles just to keep it front and center. One day when I have conference rooms, I plan on naming the conference rooms after each of these habits. So that's a little bit of personal context. And Diana, thank you for suffering through my monologue, but thank you so much for your time today. It's such an honor to have you on the show. That's so wonderful. I'm so grateful to know that it's brought value to you because that gives meaning to my life. So thank you for telling me. (laughs) Well, we're going to meander a little bit for listeners, but I I actually wanted to start, Diana, because this is often a show around career transition. And I know just a little bit of of a snippet of your own background, but from what I understand what you're doing now might not be what you thought you were you were going to be doing 10 or 15 years ago. Could you share a little bit about your own career journey to this point? Yeah. So, you know, I started out, I was in sales before I, when I just got out of college for many years, I recruited actually for the university I, I graduated from. And then I really was devoted to being a stay-at-home mom for about 12 years. And that was uh, my pride and joy. I loved it. And I started coaching at part-time a little bit while I still was with my kids. And then that coaching started to take off and it took off in ways that I did not imagine. And then at one point, my husband was in the, he was a sales manager for a pharmaceutical company and he really wasn't very happy. And we went to a coach and I said, Hey, you know, I really would like to have a man who really loves his work because it makes a difference in our marriage. And so the coach said, well, Diana, would you be willing to be the breadwinner? And uh, I can remember my throat just clamping up like, what? Because I don't think I'd ever made more than a few thousand dollars ever in a given month. And um, my husband said, wow, that would be amazing if you could take over for a while so I could really figure out what is it that I most want to do with my life. And so he gave me a number and said, if you can make this much money a month, three months in a row, I'll quit my job. And so it was was a lot more money. I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I was so devoted to helping him take a break that I just started coaching really aggressively and getting my word out in the world. And I did it. Uh, Seven months later, he quit his job and uh, I became the breadwinner and it was fantastic. It's actually, I think the reason why I got into all of this work is because we really wanted to support him. Mm. And, uh, And so I made this major career shift that looking back, I don't even really know exactly how I did it. It seems kind of, uh, 
miraculous in a way that I was able to do it. But yeah, so I've been doing this now for about 15 years and so grateful for the opportunity. As I hear you describe that, you know, him putting it or putting that question to you of like, where are you willing to do this? I feel that pit in my stomach that I, I associate, you know, with maybe jumping off a cliff into the water, but like, I've come to realize that feeling can be like the preface to every great decision I make in my life. And it's like, just when you feel yourself butt up against your comfort zone and you you decide to take that leap as you did, it can lead to great things. But I also just want to honor like, that's a big leap. And I can imagine coming from just making a little bit of money to then having this massive number put in front of you. That's, you know, that's something a lot of people would shy away from. I definitely thought like, I don't know if I can do it, <laughs> you know, because I, I don't have the muscle for it. Yeah. But I thought, well, there's got to be at least one option in reality in which I could figure out and make this happen. And if that's the case, if there's one option, then I can go find it. So that was what motivated me. And um, I just told everybody I knew that this is what I wanted and I welcomed support and people helped share my name and, and away we went. That's great. I love that mindset too, because like there only has to be one option. Like it doesn't have to, you don't need 50 ways to do it. You just need one. And, you know, I think of the the truffle pig looking for that, you know, that just, just one patch. That's, that's what I try to emulate. I wanted to, to start by asking around purpose and meaning in, in the work that we do. And um, for listeners, uh, I connected with Diana a couple of weeks ago and we, you know, just kind of chatted about potential topics. But one of the things I'll share that I've learned in, you know, 420 interviews with veterans is very often when we leave the military, there can be a little bit of a, I don't want to say flail because that has too much of a negative connotation, but there is a definite reorientation. And many people like myself, I don't think I realized when I was in the military how much of my identity and purpose that fulfilled. And one of the things I love in your book is you talk about the zone of genius and you talk about um, finding purpose in what we do. And I know that's a broad area to start, but I wanted to give some room to just have a discussion around that of what you've seen. Yeah. Okay. So the idea of the zone of genius is they are natural skills that you've had since you were born. Your family of origin could point to it and say, oh yeah, he was like that. We could see those skills. And when you do those skills, it feels often like time and space have gone away. You know, when you're in, it's that flow state. And when you're doing it also, you know, you might have to remind, somebody might have to go, hey, have you had a meal lately? <laughs> like, oh gosh, I forgot all about it because I was just being fed by the creative process I was in. Mm. So zone of genius is very tricky for each of us to identify in ourselves because it's the water we swim in. And I say, it's like telling a fish what a great swimmer it is, you know, and the fish is like, what are you talking about? I, I don't know what you mean, because it's just what I do. Whereas we have another zone called the zone of excellence, which most of us have a pretty good idea of what that is because we develop that over time. We built that skill. It feels familiar to us and something that we've intentionally have as a strength. So it's important if you're going to discover your zone of genius to get some community around you to help reflect that back to you, as well as to go back and look at where are those memories in your life, those memories that whatever you were doing, a couple of things occurred. One, you really felt like you were having fun. And that doesn't have to be haha fun. It means like I was content, like I was going up a hill, helping people come up with me. And I was in charge of making sure everybody was safe and it was rigorous, but that was fun. And then secondly, whatever you were doing, you really did a good job, meaning the world around you would say that was, you know, those were excellent skills. 
So when those two things are combined, then you're in that zone of genius. And so that's the first thing I recommend is people identify what that is. And in our book, we give people some very specific practices to help them get aware of their zone of genius. And then once you've got that, then it's, okay, I could do this zone of genius in a lot of places. I could help people. My zone of genius really is about paying attention to where are people in a contracted state that keep them from really being able to, to bring, be in their full potential. Now, I could do that as a school teacher. I could do that with a group of counselors. I could do that anywhere. I, I actually did it recently at a wedding in which the father of the bride or the groom hadn't been in touch with him very much. And he was sitting next to me and he said he was scared about giving a toast. He didn't think he should. He thought maybe his stepfather should do it. And I helped him see that he was just scared. And so he opened up and he gave this beautiful speech that brought tears to everybody in the room. And the groom was so grateful. So I'm doing my zone of genius wherever I go. I can't help it. But then where's the purpose? How are you going to direct it? Where, where is that meaningful to you? And for me, I saw that people declare that they aren't happy. Many people declare they're not happy at work. And so I thought, wow, I could help a lot of people if I could go after organizational leaders, bring this work to them so they could spread it to their organizations and I could maximize who I could get this out to. So that's my purpose is to help deliver these tools as broadly as I can. And so I, I chose organizational leaders for that reason. That's great. Just three things that stand out to me for for our listeners. Um, I I love the pairing here. You know, as I interpret it, it's it's not just what are you what do you enjoy doing, where do you experience flow, but it's also where do others see you as good at it. And I think of you know, I, I love cooking, I love running. No one's ever gonna pay me to do that. Like no one's gonna think that I'm even good at it. Like there is some component of like you know, do you if I'm interpreting correctly, like there is some component of like. Do others see you as good here? Is that is there some sort of value there? Is that let me just pause there and make sure I'm not mis- misinterpreting that? Yes, you have to be able to have a skill that people are interested in, right? Yeah. Like I remember working with a pro golfer, and he said, Diana, I know there's a lot of people who'd love to be a pro golfer, but you know the truth is it's not really bringing me joy. Hmm. I said, Oh, what brings you joy? Is this painting? Wow. I want to be a painter, but how am I going to make money being a painter? And I said, Well, are you good? <laughs> And he said, yeah, I'm pretty good. And now he makes a full-time living as a painter. And a lot of people would say, oh, you can't do that. But I believe there are many of us who could be getting paid doing what we love. We just have to get really creative and are thinking about how could that happen. That's great. Okay. That's really, that's actually really compelling to hear. A second thing that stood out as you were talking was, I love the sense of like, it's like the way that you could manifest what you're doing in many different ways. Like you, I forget the exact phrase you used, but you had an insight of what you enjoy to do. And you said, I could do this as a teacher. I could do this as this. And so I hope that that for listeners helps you realize that once you identify this kernel of something you enjoy and you're good at, there's likely many ways that it could show up in the world. It's not like a single career path. And I think that sometimes we put undue stress on ourselves to say there's one partner or spouse, there's one career rather than like there's many that fit this this mold. And then lastly, I love how it seems like as you were doing this and getting good at it and enjoying it, you wanted to have a bigger impact and that drove you to work with organizations. And if that's true, I'd just like to call out for listeners, like you don't have to have it all figured out. Like you take these steps, you make movement. And then as you get closer and closer, you realize, okay, I want to 
you know, stand up in this way and have this larger impact, but you don't know that from the outset. Don't put too much burden on yourself to have it all figured out. Oh, right. Because when I first started coaching, I was coaching a lot of couples or individuals of all kinds. And when I started out, I would never have imagined I would coach organizational leaders. I don't have business background. I don't, you know, those wasn't, that wasn't a population I was particularly interested in, but it was an evolution. And it just one step after another drew me to a place that um, I, I couldn't imagine. And I think it's important for people to stay open-minded like you're suggesting. Mm. That's great. I want to ask a couple other things, but I, I also want to give the disclaimer to listeners. When Diana and I spoke previously, I gave her permission to do live interaction that she she talked about show, not tell. So I don't know if we'll get there, but I want to remind you, Diana, I'm totally open to that. And for listeners, I I kind of we cleared that beforehand. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is exploring the opposite. And several hundred episodes, again, I interviewed Byron Katie. I'm a big fan of her work and, and kind of her take on this. And I'm actually, I lead two different men's groups and I've been going through that the last couple of weeks with them, this the thought of the, the turnaround. But I know that you have like maybe a different approach to this work. And I wanted to touch on what that means, exploring the opposite or, or how that shows up for you. Yeah, it actually is exactly the same model yep. that Byron Katie teaches because yeah. We're huge fans of hers and and the model. We just think she brilliantly put together something so simple. I agree with her that I think it's valuable to start from the beginning of the four questions, which is the first one is, is it true? And for most of us, it's like, yeah, heck yeah, it's true. That's why I'm, that's why I'm having this conversation. And then to ask, can you absolutely know for sure that it's true? And then what's it like when you think you're right and right, meaning righteous, like Mm -hmm. you want to defend it. And if you look, you'll always find suffering. There's always suffering when we want to be righteous. And then what would it be like if you couldn't believe the thought? And so I like to tell people, imagine your brain is a computer Mm. and that thought is a software program. And just imagine just for a moment, I have a power to delete that program from your computer of your mind. Just uh, we'll play a game. And so for listeners, you all could think about what's something that you noticed you get reactive about, something you want to be right about. And so we could even do it with you, Justin, is there some challenge that you've had recently where you feel still a little bit reactive? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not even a specific one. It happens frequently, but in my relationship, I get triggered a lot when I perceive that my wife is telling me what to do when I feel like she's like, I feel it as micromanaging. I feel it as kind of being disrespected or thought an idiot that I need to be explained how to clean the countertop. So like that, that would be a very specific example. That's a good one. We all have some version of that in our intimate relationships. Okay, good. So then the thought probably is something as simple as she shouldn't tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. She shouldn't tell me what to do. She, yeah, she should give me space to do it on my own. She shouldn't instruct all in that vein. Okay, which one feels the most like uh, succinct or landed for you of those thoughts? She shouldn't tell me what to do. Okay, great. So she shouldn't tell me what to do. And so we're not trying to dismiss that. You know, we want to go, Hey, I can see how it's true that she shouldn't tell you what to do, but we're looking to see, can we help the mind relax? Mm -hmm. So it's not righteous about that because when you're righteous, when you want to defend it, then you're going to get reactive. You're going to have stress in the body. There'll be um, often it will create some distance between you and your partner. And Mm so you're going to see, well, yeah, it seems like it's true. She shouldn't tell me what to do. I I I love that term righteous too, because I, I do feel like, you know, what I imagine for the crusades, you know, and whenever a long time ago, I feel like 
in that moment, it feels like this righteous war of like, how dare she? She has violated something sacred and I am on this high ground and she is just the, the worst person in the world. That's what it feels like at the time. Yeah. And so then you go, can I absolutely know for sure it's true that she shouldn't tell me what to do? Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully if most of us are wise enough to know. I can't absolutely know for sure. Like I wouldn't bet my life on it. Yeah. yeah, I think so. But I, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's something I don't know. And so then you go, what's it like when you do believe the thought? She shouldn't tell me what to do. I feel constrained. I feel put in a box. I feel separate from her. I feel attacked. I feel like the desire to attack. I could feel, yeah, it almost feels like I'm backed in a corner. Yeah. Yeah. yeah great. And then imagine I have the superpower where I can just delete that right out of your head and you can't find the thought anymore. So here she is now. She's still telling you what to do. She's standing there going, and then, but you can't believe the thought. What happens when you're being with her without your judgment? Oh, it's just like, I mean, I feel so much more open and free and curious. Like, I feel like more of like, huh, that's interesting. What's, what is it? Like, I just, there's no ego involved. It's just like openness and curiosity. Yeah. And then, you know, I like to say really what's going on is puffs of air and vibration are coming out of her mouth. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Puffs of air and vibration. That's actually what's occurring. And then I'll take those puffs of air and vibration, put them in my ears, Mm. interpret it, make up a story and either react or not react based on the story. And so then you turn it around and you go look for opposites. Now, the purpose of the turnaround, again, it's just to let go of being righteous. We're not trying to deny. It's not like you're wrong. It's just, we're just looking for how is the opposite at least is true. So she should tell me what to do. Mm. How is that at least as true as she shouldn't? Yeah. I mean, when, when I hear you say that, it's like, oh yeah, she does have expertise that I do not. Like I, she should tell me, like, I'm not great at cleaning. She should actually tell me how to clean. That is, that is true. Okay. Give me another example how it's true. She should tell me what to do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so scatterbrained. I feel like unless someone's pointing something out, I'm not going to do it. So like, yeah, she kind of needs to keep me on task for things that matter for our family or for at least for her. So she should tell me. That's a good reminder for me. Okay. And then give me another one about why it should, it's like a more about her, like she should tell me what to do. How is that true about Oh, her? I mean, it's part of her self-expression. She used to be a teacher. It's like, it's like letting, <laughs> letting her uh, sprout her or spread her natural wings and just kind of embody this person she is. Yeah. 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 Another one I can think of is, um, at least for me, when I'm trying to tell my husband what to do, I'm usually scared. Hmm. I get scared. I see the counter. It's going to have some gunk on it. You know, the company's going to come or, you know, it might get gross or something. I get scared. And so I tell people what to do often when I'm scared. And so she should tell me what to do because she's scared and she's trying to resolve her fear. Yeah. I love it. My husband, actually, whenever I'm telling him what to do, he usually now does this thing where he, he goes, peep, peep, peep. Mama bird's a little concerned. (laughs) And it helps me come back and realize, oh, that's right. I'm just scared. And that helps me relax that just to come back and recognize I'm scared. So I want to control. Mm -hmm. And when he reminds me of that, I relax. Yeah. And hearing you say that, I know like the story that I'm making up is that she is angry or disrespectful or doesn't, you know, doesn't love me versus like, and, and those are you know, those are all about me. I don't think I even considered like, oh, 
she is, she's scared. She's scared of people coming over and think she doesn't run a, a clean household, or she's scared that our three-year-old will get sick because it's not clean. Like there's fear driving that, which has nothing to do with me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When you can remember that in the moment, it's like, oh, babe, okay. Yeah. I get you're, you're concerned about this. And we all get reactive when we think there's a threat to our approval. You know, like, what are they going to think about my cleanliness of my home? Yeah. Yeah. Or my security, what if my child gets sick? That could be a physical security issue. Or my uh, threat to my control. I want to control an aesthetic in the home. Mm. So if I believe there's a threat to security, control, or approval, I'm going to get reactive and I'm going to want to be righteous. Mm-hmm. And then I always like to do the turnarounds a couple of different ways. So another one you could say is um, instead of she shouldn't tell me what to do, I shouldn't tell me what to do. Mm. How often am I pushing on myself, telling me I have to do things even when I don't want to? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So she's a mirror holding up that controller over there that I have also on myself. So how could I start to pay attention to where I'm telling myself what to do? I'm micromanaging myself. Yeah. I love that too, because I've probably heard this from a million places, but I realize how much I project all the things I dislike about myself onto others. And so, and as you say that, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like very, can be very type A. And so like, you know, from 5 a.m. when my son gets up onwards, it's just telling myself, okay, what's the, what is the right use of the next three minutes? And it's just kind of like every little thing becomes this right and wrong decision of use of time. And so when I hear you say that, it's like giving myself the permission of like, I don't need to be constantly telling myself what to do. I don't need to tell myself every second uh, what to do. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, and then there also could be other ways you could turn it around. You could turn it around of, I shouldn't tell her what to do. Mm -hmm. Is there any way I'm around telling her how to be or do? And then another one you could turn around is, I should tell her what to do. Yeah. Yep. Maybe I could be a little more directive or I should tell others what to do because maybe her direction is something I avoid in myself of not asking for what I want and being particular. And yeah. so the turnarounds are really wonderful ways to get to know what's being um, dismissed in myself, what's being, maybe what am I doing that I don't see, what wants to come up in me more. I love that last one because, you know, I, I know about myself that I, I hate telling others what to do. It feels like a violation of some sacred bond. And the, the rare times with Rebecca, when I do that, when I'm like, hey, we're going to go to this restaurant or, hey, go do this and do that. Not, not always, but very often, like I see her relax into that. Like she appreciates that structure. She appreciates not being the person always in control. So yeah. that last one in particular really lands as like, oh man, that's like a great reminder that I could do a lot more of that in, in our relationship in a way that actually serves her, that actually helps her. And for whatever reason, I have this aversion because I hate being told what to do. Yes. Yes. That's exactly true. I love it when my husband says like, um, I'd like to take you out to dinner, be ready at six and wear your favorite dress. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, I yeah. get to go, oh, this is fun to, yeah. to let myself play more on that other side of the polarity of, of being led. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think of too, you know, I, I um, really like Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. And he has this process where the night before you kind of jot down your schedule for the next day. And I notice when I come into work those days, it's great. I don't have to think about what to do. I just follow the plan. And so like I'm, I'm viewing that polarization through that lens of almost creating that structure for myself too, and creating that structure for her and, and uh, the benefit that that can serve. 
Yeah. And so then you go, oh, babe, thanks for telling me what to do. Because it's really helping me remember that I want to open more up to that part in me. Yeah. And, and then you can play around with, I look forward to the next time she tells me what to do. Yeah. And she do that as a practice and see, can I stay present? Can I stay in an open, curious place? And you could say, hey, I think I have a sense of how to do the counters now. Would mm. you trust me? <laughs> you know, could yeah. you trust me now? And that's, that's a practice then that she gets to then open to. Yeah, I'm literally thinking of spraying the bone of me on the cat the the, the stovetop this morning because I did not clean it right yesterday. So I'm like, maybe I maybe she can't trust me just yet, but maybe in the next couple of days I can demonstrate that. <laughs> that's that's great. And I might be making a, a bridge here that's not appropriate. So so correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this relates around limiting beliefs. And you know, this is a big I, I'm a huge advocate of this thought of these limiting core beliefs we have that are often unconscious. And I think when we spoke last, I'd put in my notes, you know, you had said something like, oh, someone might believe they don't have enough tech experience for a job and therefore they rule themselves out. And if it's relevant to this, like, could you talk a little bit more about limiting beliefs and the the role they might play, especially through this lens of um, a career journey? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have stories in our own heads. We want to be right about, about ourselves. Mm. So um, I was just supporting somebody who said, I haven't been, I've been out of the business world for a while. He actually went back to college to get a degree. And so he scared himself with the idea of I've, like they've, they've moved on mm. beyond me now. And I'm the old guy and no one's going to want me in this tech world. And so I had him take a look at how he wanted to be right about that. And then how that was creating an experience of uh, doubt and a lack of confidence that then of course was showing up in his interviews. And so what's it like to step back out and go, what if that weren't true? And what if I don't have to have it just like the young people have, mm. you know, can I find that I have a certain skills they don't have that are also a part of my this, the, the gifts I bring to the position? And so once he started to open up and let go of the story, he started to get more curious about, well, well how am I a better, like a, a better hire because I have experience, because I have certain skills that come from a past yeah. that, that are still really valuable now? That's that's great, and I'll I'll just name uh, a few for myself for our listeners to make it more concrete. Like you know, I've been an entrepreneur for ten years with lots of failure, and you know the way that these beliefs showed up for me was I missed my chance, or it's too late for me, or it will never work out, or hundreds of these sorts of thoughts. But you can imagine when I'm certain about these beliefs, when I'm righteous about these beliefs, how they become self-fulfilling prophecies. There's this like confirmation bias. Every time someone would reject a sales proposal, it's reaffirming that I missed my chance. And so, you know, I start to find ways on a subconscious level where I'm like, oh, there it is. It will never work out. Rather than making a little bit of room around that of like, that might not be true. And that might be tainting how I show up in the world and how I, I work and all of these things. So I think that's a really very, very powerful concept that you're, you're talking about. Yeah. I remember I had a limiting belief how I can't coach business leaders. I don't have any business experience. Yeah. How am I going to be effective? How are they going to trust me? I yeah. thought I thought I could be effective, but they're never going to buy into the fact that I can help. And I, I remember sitting in on the first executive meeting and they said something like Q, you know, in Q2. And I'm like, I don't know what Q2 is. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. 
I mean, that's how much I had been out of that world. And so I, I didn't say anything. I remember going home and looking up on the internet, what does Q2 mean? And then going, oh gosh, that's so obvious. But, but that's how naive I was about the content they were discussing. But I learned I didn't need to know about the content. I had another set of skills that they wanted. And my job was just to value that. And then they would too. Mm. It's great because, I mean, this example, you know, you're, you're obviously far past that point, but for our listeners, they can see the trajectory. If Diana had believed that limiting belief, I can't work with executives, I can't work with business people, you know, who knows how it turns out, but she definitely wouldn't be doing what she's doing, which disproves it a hundred, a thousand percent, you know? So I really love given the distance between you and that belief of seeing like it, it has a major impact on where we go in life and the opportunities we're open to seizing and the failures we're open to embracing and risking. So I, I think that's a beautiful example. Yeah. The other thing is, I did find things like they all have advanced degrees. I don't have an advanced degree. So that might make me in their eyes less valuable. They all have a lot of business success. I don't have business success. I was I was looking at all the things I don't have. And so I remember starting to feel a lack of confidence. I remember being with one group in particular and I started to drop my confidence while I was supporting them. And I could feel that I wasn't being effective with them. And I thought, oh my gosh, I think they're going to fire me right now in the middle of this meeting. And so I went away, we had a break. I went away and I sat down and I thought, it's true that you don't have these other things that they have that they value, but there are things that you do have. And I really went to put on, what is it that they value? What is it that they want from me? And I recommitted, came back in the group. I actually revealed all this to them and came back in and started up again. And they all said, actually, we were thinking of firing you. <laughs> and you completely turned it around and brought great value once I changed my beliefs in my head and came back to seeing the value in me and then standing for that being seen in, from their eyes. That's incredible. I thought the story was going to go like, oh, we always think it's worse than it is. And it's like, no, we were, we were you're actually quite perceptive. We were going to fire you. <laughs> but yeah. I love the the recalibration there. I think that listeners can probably apply this to thinking in, in physical performance and athletic performance, like all of these things, the, the mindset we have shifts the, the way we show up and the outcome and all of these things. So I love that your ability to just reset in the moment and be, in this case, really transparent with what you were experiencing. And, and I'm imagining the radical shift that had on the room and the people. I mean, it clearly had a pretty major change in the outcome. It did. And had a big change. And they also really appreciated that they could see me doing my work in the moment yeah. and recognizing, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's the work we all want to be doing too. Yeah. It's a good segue into the next thing, which is around feeling all feelings. And the reason I think it's a segue is like, I feel like, and, and in some cases, you know, in the military, it might be true that you can't always fully disclose things that are going on. Like that might not always be appropriate. And the opposite of that is that very often it is appropriate. Very often it is very meaningful to drop the veil rather than trying to find the right answer to just kind of share where you're at, good or bad. And one of the things that I thought was just so beautifully and crisply explained in your book was this concept of feeling all feelings. And I'd, I'd love to make a little bit of space for us to discuss, discuss that because um, in both a personal and business sense, I've seen the power of this when I'm able to do it and notice I'm feeling something and, and give movement to this emotion. It's it's so much more powerful and, and something that I definitely didn't do when I was in the military. 
I've actually worked with a few military folks. And one of the things that I see first and foremost that is really helpful is to start to be with your grief because life is very purposeful in the military and there are these great bonds and there is this work that you're doing that gives your meaning to yourself. And so when that ends, there's this, it's like the end of a beautiful movie. You have to let it die. And so for a lot of us, we have to let ourselves feel the letting go through grief, which often you'll feel it in the body. There'll be like a heaviness in the chest or narrowing in the throat or behind the eyes. There's this sensations in the body that are intelligent that say something needs to end. Something needs to be let go of. And if you don't grieve, then you're going to get depressed because you'll start to contract around those sensations and then they get stuck and you get flat. And so having the courage to be with those sensations, welcome them into the body, welcome the tears behind the eyes, welcome in the narrow of the throat, welcome that heaviness in the chest, and then allowing it to come all the way through the body. So it comes to completion and grief is unique because there is a wave after wave. And just when you think you've felt it all, mm. there's another wave and, and, and it can last for quite some time. And so being, but having the courage, it takes courage to feel that grief because it's uncomfortable in the body. And most of us don't want to be with that heartache, be with that loss. And so, and then fear is another one, because to your point, a lot of times we had to not bring our fear forward, but most of the time you want to be able to let it be okay. I'm scared. We're scared. My experience is most of us are just a bunch of little kids running around scared. Yeah. And that fear shows up in the belly, mostly, sometimes up into the throat as well. But all those sensations, that pit in the stomach, that swirling, the butterflies, nausea, all that can be sensations of fear. And again, can you welcome it? I'm right now in a big transition where I don't know where I'm going yet. And I feel scared most days. Mm. And I feel that pit in the stomach and that kind of like, I almost feel like I could throw up a little bit, you know, and I'm just welcoming. Yeah, I'm scared because I, the intelligence of fear says, hey, something needs to be learned. You don't know about something yet. And when you're in the unknown, when you're in these big transitions in your life, that intelligence of fear is right there with you saying, I'm here helping you pay attention because there's things you need to learn right now. Just like for most of us, when we learned to drive a car, I was scared. And until I really got practice, until I didn't need to learn anything new. And when I stopped needing to learn, the fear goes, you've got this. I can relax now. So your fear is like a best friend that's always just inviting you to keep learning until you don't need to learn. So um, that's something that I, and anger as well. Sometimes there's a frustration or an anger about how you feel people are receiving you or the opportunities feel like they're not as available as you'd like, or the support systems aren't as ideal as you'd want. And there's an intelligence that says, yeah, this doesn't serve me. And you're, you're smart and intelligent to say, grr, I'm angry. I wish there was more effective support here. This doesn't feel as good as it could be, I believe. And that's intelligence speaking, asking everything to evolve into something that creates more of a win for all, for all of us. So fear, sadness, anger, those three, so important to keep connecting with as sensations in the body and moving them through so you don't contract around them and start to flatten, deflate yourself, get, get in that place where you start to lose feeling and feel depressed. 
I love this. A couple of things that come up for me. One is when I first was exposed to, you know, feelings, let's call it eight years ago, I, I literally carried around my wallet like a little card with these primary feelings. And and at the time, what I started to realize was as, you know, as a, a male from the military, I think I knew happiness and anger. And those were like the two emotions that I really knew. And over time started to unintertwine them to realize like, okay, there's there are more emotions here. There's more of a full palette. And oftentimes I would find that that anger was just the surface emotion and underneath there was fear, you know, like in the case with my wife, I think, you know, that I gave the example earlier, I think I'm, I'm feeling anger because there's some sort of boundary crossed and that needs to be addressed. But underneath that, there is this fundamental fear of like, will she love me? Will she accept me? And that's like, to me, that's like almost a deeper version. And so the first thing I wanted to just bring up for listeners is I, I really loved in your book, you, I think you make the comparison to the primary colors from which, you know, there's millions of colors, but there's really three primary colors. And so you, you kind of tease those apart as, correct me if I'm misremembering, but joy, fear, sadness, creativity slash sexual feelings kind of I put together and- Anger. Yeah. And that, you know, the one that I'm leaving out was the second point I want to say, which is one of the men's groups I do is all veterans. And I found that for myself and these men, and I think many veterans, um, I think we oftentimes demonize anger. Like I've spent most of my life not wanting to be angry. And what I appreciated about your book is that you you tie each emotion to some innate wisdom in us of like, look, I'm feeling angry. There's there's something I need to pay attention to here. Like what why am I angry? Like maybe there's a boundary that's been crossed. Maybe there is something that's worth being angry about. And I, I just want to name that for our audience because there is there is a lot of value to anger when expressed properly. And it's not something I think we we miss out as humans if we spend our lives avoiding that, which is what I've done for so much of my life. Yeah. So for example, uh, my daughter is a therapist and uh, working in a mental health hospital. And she would tell me about the lack of treatment that was available, that they'd have to like dismiss people off the hospital once they came in for their emergency because they didn't have any place to send them. And I could just feel my anger rise of the, the intelligence in me saying, this doesn't serve our populations not to have places for people with mental health issues to get treatment. So that Anger activates my action to start to talk to others and talk to people who have decision rights over these things and say, what can we do? How do we change the system? And without that anger, we won't evolve things in ways that would serve me and my people. So anger is loving. It's so loving when it's not righteous, when it's and when it's in a state of openness and curiosity, I want to learn how do we create systems that are affordable to help people with mental health issues? There's got to be a way. I, I love that distinction you added there because when I, you know, when I was putting myself in your shoes describing this situation, I feel myself gear shift into righteous anger, which is me with a wrecking ball and me just steamrolling things versus that anger that's coupled with curiosity and maybe compassion that is. I know much more effect, effective for me at, at, at making change and getting people on board and convincing others to join me. Like it's just, it is, um, I hope it doesn't sound too academic for listeners, but there is that distinction. Yeah, we use this model called the line. Mm. And I think it's super helpful. We say, 
either in any given moment, you're either above the line or you're below the line. And when you're above the line, you're open and curious. Hey, there's an issue. We can solve this. It's got to be a way. I want to learn. I want to learn how do we get here? How do we get out of here? Whereas when I'm below the line, I am triggered and reactive. I want to be right. I want to be righteous. Like, how come it's like this? It shouldn't be like this. Who's to blame? And I want to fight. And so, um, and then I'm going to suffer down below the line in reactivity. And likely I'm not going to be able to help change people's minds because I'm in a reactive state that wants to go to war on some level. And so then if I start talking to people, they're going to get defensive. And so this idea of the first thing when I work with clients is to ask them, can you locate yourself in any given moment? Are you above the line or below the line? Above the line, anger doesn't want to blame. It just wants to solve the issue. Below the line, anger wants to blame. It wants to point fingers. It wants to be aggressive in its criticism. And so there's a difference between those two that are super helpful if you can start to recognize where am I? And if I am below the line, I'm below the line because I'm scared. And I can feel it. I'm scared. I don't want people to suffer. And I'm going to suffer if they're going to suffer. I don't want I don't want to feel my heartbreak about this. So I'm scared. And so can I recognize I'm scared? And then once I recognize that, how can I shift out of this reactive, threatened place to a place of openness and curiosity? And in our book is all about those shift moves. How do you shift? How can you change that mindset? And then from that new mindset, how do I be the resolution to the thing that I see needs to change? I remember one of the things when I read that, that I liked, you know, part of this is from my upbringing, but a lot of it's from the military is I can be in this very black and white, right and wrong thinking. And when I read that uh, framework around the line, what I got from it was like, it's not really as much about like, oh, I'm above the line or I'm a below the line. I, I get an A versus an F. It's more of like, can I develop the capacity to know where I'm at on the map and then I can navigate my way above the line. So it's not, you know, I think that sometimes I get in a state of like, oh, I'm below the line, therefore I'm wrong, therefore I'm bad. And it's less about the right or wrong. It's like, oh, isn't that interesting? I'm below the line. Okay, how can I move back to shifting to this state of openness and curiosity? And by the way, that's totally normal. Almost everybody does that. And there's a reason for that because our brains like to categorize things in order to motivate us to change behavior. So in the beginning, most of us do say, oh, below the line is bad. I can't be bad. I got to be good. And so it, that's what drives us to want to learn the models and create new ways of doing things. And then at some point you realize, oh, yeah, that's not true. Yeah. Um, below the line is actually a natural human state that I'm in much of the time. And that's not a problem. But I now have tools that I can learn to shift if I want to. That's great. That's great. I know we've only got a couple minutes left, so we probably won't have time to fully mine this. But I did want to ask you about uh, practicing integrity, and and for myself, you know, at the Naval Academy, integrity was such a uh, loaded word. Like I had a very strong connotation for integrity, and I feel like you put a different definition on integrity in the book. And I was wondering if we could just kind of expound on that a little bit. Yeah, think of we define integrity as energetic wholeness. So the idea being like, if I'm an energy system, when I'm in energetic wholeness, everything's flowing easily. I feel I've got a lot of vitality and aliveness. And then if I'm out of integrity, there'll be a glitch in the system, something that interrupts that flow. And so little things can do that. So when I withhold my thoughts and feelings towards others and myself, that can create a little interruption in my flow. Mm. 
And it, it's like a little glitch. And then I can feel, oh, I don't have as much of that aliveness as I did before. When I make an agreement with somebody and I break it and I haven't cleaned it up, I can feel that glitch. I feel that little uh in me. And so that interrupts flow. When I am not really taking responsibility for a circumstance around me and I'm blaming instead of that, it's going to create this glitch and I'll be contracted in some way. So the idea is when I am in these little contractions, because I'm out of integrity, I'm out of energetic flow, I have a lot I can do to bring back my flow by getting back in integrity, by cleaning these things up. So let me go clean up all my broken agreements. And let me make sure when I do make agreements, I make a really clear agreement, who will do what by when. Let me make sure that if I'm blaming anywhere, that instead of blaming, I come back and say, let me teach the class on how I have co-created this with others just for the parts that I have control over. There are certain things I don't have control over, but the things I do have control over, let me take responsibility for how I'm a part of this. And let me be practicing revealing rather than concealing, because when I conceal, I start to pull away from people. And that's going to create an an effect on my energetic wholeness. So that's what we mean by integrity. There's so much power to that. I, I literally just a couple of weeks ago reconnected with a guy who worked with me six or seven years ago. And I just think about, you know, probably a couple times a month, I, I thought with regret about some of the ways that I had treated him. So I reached out and, and connected with him and just kind of shared that and took ownership for it. And it is, you know, it's liberating, I think for him and for me to just kind of make space to hear that. And, to, and like, as you said, clean that up. But I feel like when it may feel tiny, but these little things add up and their their cognitive load of, the things about around which we feel shame or regret, or uh, it feels incomplete. And so the power of whether it's something tiny or something big, trying to, to clean up those situations, I feel like it just frees up our mind share and also just kind of removes those. I like the way you said it in that energetic system, it removes the friction and the, the sediment that might be gumming up the machine. Yeah. I learned this model from Gay and Kathleen Hendricks of the Hendricks Institute. They're key mentors and have a lot of influence over much of the work we do comes from their body of work. And I watched them. They were some of the most alive, bright, joyful people I'd ever met. And I remember thinking like, wow, what is that? And I really found that their commitment to their integrity was a huge part of how they were embodying so much aliveness. And so they were a vision that called me to want to be living more that way. And Um, And I think that um, it's scary to get back in integrity because there are reasons why we don't tell people the truth or why we don't want to feel feelings there. You know, it's, it's threatening to our identities. And so it's um, you have to be willing to face the cost of being out of integrity because there are big costs. So, or get inspired by a vision of what it would feel like to really be fully alive and what integrity do I have to handle to feel that? So facing the, the cost and seeing a beautiful vision of what it could be are the motivating drives that could help people start to get back in integrity. That's great. I know, I know that we're just up out of time, but I always want to make space at the end. First is where can people find more if they'd like to go deeper? And then second of all, just making room if there's anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure that you, you share with listeners before we wrap up. Yeah, so our website is conscious.is.is. So conscious.is. And one of the things I want your listeners to know is that we have a resource page and we have brought all of our content forward. 
for anybody to use. There are guided visualizations there. There are fantastic animated videos that explain concepts really briefly. There's handouts. We have podcasts that we'll put up. We'll put this one up. And so the more we can learn, we'll share it with you all. So, um, and we also have a newsletter there if you want to get the latest and greatest. And then as far as um, anything we didn't cover, you know, I really do think emotional intelligence is such a biggie. So I'm really glad we covered that. And coming back into what is your zone of genius and checking out those limiting beliefs that would keep you from finding new ways you want to give your gifts to the world is right in there. So I think the other thing I would say is um, one of the commitments is to shift from a life of um, making things serious to a life of play. Mm. And I do think that might be one because, you know, military can be serious and play would seem irresponsible perhaps sometimes. And being a provider for a family feels serious. And so I think learning to have a play mindset, it's, it's about how can I gamify a lot of this, like game on, I got to find a job, (laughs) game on, how could I make this like a game rather than make this heavy and serious? Because that, that lighthearted play mindset goes a long way in being able to open up possibilities. So that's one that we write about and we talk, we give um, different play styles that we uh, suggest on the resource page. And I think a lot of us forgot to play, you know, because school said everybody straighten up, settle down, no more play, you know, but you ask kids, what's your favorite part of school? They all say the same thing. It's recess because human beings and all mammals learn best through play. In fact, there's some new research coming out that says kids might learn 40 times faster when they're playing. So if you all are wanting to learn, how do I get into all this? Bring more play, a play mindset in. So that would be one thing I would want to make sure we don't miss and skip over. That's exceptional. And and for listeners at beyondtheuniform.org, we'll have links in the show notes to the, the book, Conscious.is, for those of you flying a jet or driving a submarine and not able to write that down as you're doing listening to this. I'll add one other thing, which is this is one of uh, maybe three books where after I read it, I uh, took my fancy mic out and I recorded, I went back through and read all the underlined portions that I had in the book and read, uh, turned it into an MP3 that I listened to occasionally just as a refresher. But it is that powerful of a book, not being paid in any way to say this. So it's a genuine endorsement, but I, I really believe then in the power of what you're doing, the benefit it is for our world, for our communities, and, and very grateful for the work that you're doing, but also just taking the time to, to speak with me and our audience today. Oh, I'm so grateful. And especially to this audience, because I'm profoundly grateful for their service and um, their devotion and their sacrifice. And so um, I'm so grateful to give back in any way I can. Thank you so much. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. 
third of all donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.